For a number of weeks now, we've been engaged in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to turn there again this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We took a one-week break last week as we tried to examine a, a biblical stance on sexual morality. This morning, we come back now to our series in 2 Thessalonians, and we continue here in chapter 2, and eventually we're going to make our way to verse 13. But I I want to remind you exactly what is happening here in this this chapter. Not, Not just in this chapter, but I want to remind you exactly what is happening in this little letter to the Thessalonians. This young church there in Thessalonica is receiving is on the receiving end of a great amount of suffering. They're on the receiving end of a great amount of persecution and hardship. And really, that was the case from the very get-go, from the very beginning of the church there in Thessalonica. And the Apostle Paul, as a, as a good pastor, as a good elder, is writing to the church, and he wanted them to know that they could not possibly have missed being gathered together to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, make no mistake, that was the issue in Thessalonica. They thought, the the, the church there thought that they were in the midst of the day of the Lord. They thought they were in the midst of the day of the wrath of God. You see, they had expected, according to Paul's teaching, that before the day of the Lord, they would have been caught away. We, we come to use the term raptured. They expected that they would be raptured out, that they would be caught away before the day of the Lord. But here they were with all of this suffering, all of these trials, all of this hardship, all of this pain surrounding them, that they began to think they had missed it, that they began to think They missed being gathered together to Christ. Not only that, but there were these teachers coming into the church basically saying that they could affirm. They could affirm that the day of the Lord has come. Paul talked about this in other epistles. I think about what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said, their talk, speaking of the false teachers, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. That, you can be sure, was what was happening in Thessalonica. And that's what he is addressing most specifically in 2 Thessalonians. It came up, you remember when we went through 1 Thessalonians, But he is really pressing the issue here in 2 Thessalonians. And here in the second chapter, he is calling them to not become disoriented, distressed, or deceived. You see, when it comes to these things that they're facing, when it comes to the the suffering and the hardship and the, the, the encroachment of false teachers, what often happens is people get disoriented. They get knocked off their doctrinal rocker, so to speak. And not only do they get disoriented, but they can become distressed. They're alarmed. Oh no, what's happening? We've missed it. Or they get deceived by false doctrine. Now listen, as a church, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are promised persecution. Make no mistake about that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 tells us that everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The comfort of this chapter and the comfort of the Apostle Paul that comes from this text is not a promise that you'll never suffer. The Bible never promises a suffering-free life. The Bible never promises freedom from trials. The Bible does promise, however, that you will never face the wrath of God as a believer in Jesus Christ. The Bible never promises freedom from suffering. The Bible does say you will never 
be condemned as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's what often happens to Christians in the throes of difficulty, especially when we're considering the, the future. We, we become discomforted because we see things going on around us or we experience the internal pains and the external persecutions. But Paul is writing in chapter 2 to comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So I want to remind you that what we've been really learning here is that Christians do not need to fear the day of the Lord. Christians do not need to fear the wrath of God. And the question becomes, why? Why do you not need to fear? Why do you not need to have your faith rocked when things go awry and when false teachers come in as they keep multiplying with every kind of false teaching and misleading teaching. Why do you not need to fear that you'll face the wrath of God? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, why do you need to not fear that? Well, Paul in chapter 2, we found, gives us one reason. We could say he gave us an eschatological reason. Now remember, that's just a big word. Speak of eschatology, speak of end times. What he does here. He tells us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that your faith doesn't need to be rocked because of this eschatological reason. Remember what he does? Paul goes back to what he taught them when he was there. And apparently, when he was there in Thessalonica, he led them through a synopsis of Old Testament teaching regarding a person. He calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. We find this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And that section gives us a snapshot of the, apo, uh, the apost, yeah, apostolic teaching that was received by the early church. In other words, you get an idea here regarding what Paul taught the local churches at that time in regards to the issues of eschatology. There's a fairly young church, yet he taught them issues of eschatology. Simply put, he says this. You cannot be in the day of the Lord because, and he gives them this reason, because the Antichrist has not yet been revealed. In other words, in order for the day of the Lord to come, Antichrist must be revealed. But he can't be revealed because God is restraining him. But when he comes, there will be a strong delusion sent out from God among all who do not believe the truth, and who instead take pleasure in unrighteousness. Now let me just give you a side note here. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, we have a very vivid way of thinking about unbelievers. Unbelievers do not believe the truth, but instead of believing the truth, they are well pleased with, they enjoy unrighteousness. Unbelievers refuse the truth, and instead of loving the truth, they actually love unrighteousness. Instead of loving the saving truth of the gospel, they enjoy unrighteousness. You say, well, what is unrighteousness? Well, I would tell you to go back to last week in our text in 1, Thessalonians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we found that tenfold summary of unrighteousness what is unrighteousness? Well, he says it's fornication, idolatry, adultery, effeminacy, homosexuality, thievery, greediness, drunkenness, reviling, and swindling. Now listen, you, if you love those things, if you enjoy those things, that by necessity excludes you from loving the truth of God. If you delight in those things, by necessity you cannot love the truth of God. And, and God tells us throughout the scripture, that's exactly what happens, especially in the last days. Men become lovers of themselves instead of lovers of the truth of God. So if you find that you delight in unrighteousness and that that's the practice of your life, that's the opposite of loving the truth. So Paul gives us an eschatological reason why, why the Thessalonians could not possibly have been in the day of the Lord. What's that? 
He said the man of sin hasn't been revealed. The Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. He can't be revealed because God is restraining him. And when God removes his hand, then, then the Antichrist is going to come with all these you know, wonders and miracles and deceive people. That leads us to a second reason that Christians need not fear the day of the Lord. And that's what we might call a soteriological reason. You say, what? A soteriological reason? Well, soteriology is just a way of referring to the doctrine of salvation. Let me show you what he does here. Look in verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But, stop right there. <laughs> that's how far we're going to get today. <laughs> Notice what happens here. He's drawing a line, a contrast, a delineation. He's contrasting the unbelievers who refuse to love the truth and instead enjoy unrighteousness. And now he's drawing a contrast between them and the church at Thessalonica. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. The contrast is between believers and unbelievers. You, not, you need not fear the wrath of God because you're not like the unbelievers. You're not those who refuse to love the truth. You are not those who enjoy unrighteousness. Instead of fearing, instead of being disoriented, instead of being distressed and deceived, there is an obligation, but not to those things. The obligation of the church is to give thanks. The, the obligation is not fearing, but thanking. And that's a far cry from the confused, fearful state of so many. You see, when we rightly think about these things, we will find that we are actually obligated to continually give thanks to God. And there are six reasons that compel us to do that. Six reasons that compel us to be thanking instead of fearing. I say it like this, there are six characteristics of genuine Christians here in our text this morning, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And when you, brothers and sisters, when you understand these characteristics of genuine believers, you will be assured you will be assured. You will walk out of here with absolute certainty that no believer will ever face the wrath of God. And being assured, being certain, it's going to lead you to hold fast to the word of God like a bulldog. You're not going to let it go. Let's look here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, I just want to walk through this text and point out these six characteristics of genuine believers or six reasons that we have to give thanks instead of to be fearful. The first is that genuine believers are beloved by Christ. Now, if you were following the notes on the app that we put out, you, I had in there originally beloved by God, but I changed that to beloved by Christ because I want to say that he seems to be specifically thinking here about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 13, brothers beloved by the Lord. Now, if we're talking about the love of God more generally, we might see this as a reference to the foreknowledge of God. That is, God's foreknowledge is his decision to set his love on his church before the foundation of the world. But this is very clearly referring to the love of the Lord Jesus. That's why he uses the word Lord. He uses the word Lord because he wants them to understand that they are loved by Christ. That is, that they are in a state of being loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul, whenever he uses this word Lord in his epistles, he's always referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he often uses, combines the word Lord and love together to refer to the love of Jesus Christ. I think about how he does that in, in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nor neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's talking here about the love of Jesus Christ. Now the love of Jesus, friends, if you think about this with me, is most assuredly demonstrated by him taking up his cross and bearing the wrath of God in the place of ruined sinners. I might say to you that this is why we must never fear the wrath of God. We must never fear the wrath of God because the Lord Jesus Christ has taken the wrath of God fully in our place. He wants them and He wants us to bask in the glory of this thought for just a moment. Instead, brothers and sisters, instead of being in danger of Jesus inflicting vengeance, like He says in chapter 1, verse 8, instead of being in danger of Jesus inflicting vengeance on them in His wrath, they must understand that He has set His love on them. And by the way, the grammar here tells us that this is a love that is a once-for-all love. In other words, they are loved and they just keep on being loved. They are always in a state of being loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. I like what one commentator said. He said this, Men may hate and persecute them, but they can take courage from the fact that they are objects of the love of the Lord Jesus who will triumph over all evil. That's good. Everything else, you need to understand, everything else in the coming verses flows from this thought of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for His church. You must not fear the wrath of God because you are loved by Christ. Let that sink in. But there's a second reason. There's a second characteristic. Not only are they beloved by Christ, but they are chosen by God you see here we're already working in and you'll see the the trinitarian nature of this text he says brothers beloved by the lord because god chose you now just stop there and i want to ask a question why are they loved by christ let me ask it this way why does jesus love you believer why does he love you, church? And you see it right here. This is so glorious. He loves you because God chose you. Now just stop and think about that. I think this really sets our hearts to praise and really brings us to a proper position of humility before God. What is the reason for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? The reason for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that is set on you, the reason you are in a state of being loved by Jesus is because God chose you. The election of God. The choosing of God. Now, the word choose here is a bit different than we might expect or that we have come to expect as you follow Paul's theology, especially in the book of Romans and places like that, it's a different word. It's not the word eklektos, election, but it is a word and it's most often used of a human. It's hardly ever used of God, but it's most often used as a human and it is a word that means to prefer, to take to oneself. That's what it means. And here's what it refers to. It refers, and you want to get this, it refers to the free, unhindered decision of God 
based on His preference. He chooses for Himself on what basis? On the basis of His preference. And that preference, my friends, is unhindered. In other words, it is not influenced by anything or anyone else outside of God. Why are you loved by Jesus? Because God chose you for himself based solely on his delight to do so. Now, there's some question about this next phrase here, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Uh, the NASB has God chose you from the beginning. It's really one Greek letter. So if you have ESV, you read as the first fruits. If you have NAS, you read from the beginning. It's really one Greek letter that, that determines how we take this. If it's as the ESV has it, then he's saying that the Thessalonian believers are the first of many to come. I tend to side with the New American Standard, and I think that reading should be preferred here because Paul almost always speaks of being chosen from the beginning. Just like he says in Ephesians chapter 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Or in 2 Timothy 2, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So he chose us for himself before the foundation of the world. Now keep this, keep this in mind. Keep the context in mind here. And you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ loved us because God the Father selected us on the basis of his preference from before the foundation of the world. That's what initiated the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see why Paul says we're obligated to not just give thanks every once in a while, but to give thanks continually? Because this, friends, is his deal. This is his idea. You need not fear the wrath of God because God chose you from the very beginning with a great purpose. And you say, what is that purpose? And I say, I'm glad you asked. It's right here in the text. He chose you as the first fruits, and I'll just put this as a third, to be saved. Now in the notes I have saved by God, but I'd like to change it to being saved from wrath. That's a characteristic of Christians. That's why we must not fear, because we are saved from wrath. God chose you to be saved. Now you've heard that word before. We sing about that word we talk about being saved. What a great word it is. When we use this word saved, what do we mean? We mean being delivered from sin and its consequences. And that is the truth in its broadest possible sense. But this word is often used in the Thessalonian epistles. Chapter 1, uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, chapter 2, it's used a couple of times. Listen how it's used in chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what I mean to say to you is you can be sure that when Paul uses this term, though it can be applied broadly, when he uses the word saved, it can be applied broadly, but he is using it with an eschatological view. In other words, he's looking to the end the end of time. And he is declaring that those Christians would certainly not face the wrath of God because God chose them to be saved. God chose them to be rescued. God chose them. God, God selected them to himself that they might be delivered from wrath. What comfort, friends. What joy. What hope in those words. It's like Paul. It's, it's like the Thessalonian church is a, a scared little boy or little girl at night and they've just had a, a dream at night that shocked them out of their sleep and they immediately start to cry and to fret. And in comes a loving father. In comes a loving 
mother and just comforts their fearful children. He is saying, you, you, my dear Thessalonian church, you stand not in danger of the destruction of the man of sin. You are not in danger of the deception that he leads his followers in. Your destiny is not vengeance. Your destiny is not flaming fire. Your destiny is not punishment. No, dear ones, do not fear that. For the Lord Jesus Christ himself has set his love on you once for all because God the Father in eternity past elected you for himself that you would be saved, delivered, rescued. And I can just hear the Apostle Paul pouring out just this love like a gentle father or a tender mother. And I hope you hear those same words to you this morning. You as a believer in Christ, fear not the wrath of God because you have been chosen to be saved. Think of it. Amazing, isn't it, church? He says, number four, fourth characteristic of true believers, the fourth reason that we are thanking, not fearing, is, he says, because you are sanctified, you have uh, been saved, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. Sanctified by the Spirit and belief in truth. That's the characteristic. God's choice, friends, God's choice, which is the basis for the love of the Lord, God's choice, which is the basis for the love of the Lord, of Jesus Christ operates by means of spirit sanctification. Now you hear that word sanctification. You say, man, that's a, a big word. Well, when you hear it, just understand that as being, referring to being set apart. Being set apart from sin and unto God. And I want you to keep the context in mind here. God chose you to be saved and he saved you through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. There's no possibility of separating the sanctifying work of the Spirit from the truth. In other words, the Spirit sanctifies, he sets apart by means of the truth. That's the divine side. The human side is believing the truth. I would call this a, that you are sanctified by spirit-led belief in the truth. You see what happens? The Holy Spirit works on us such as to give us new life to dead sinners in this work of regeneration. That's what we call being born again. You see, what happens to every genuine believer is you're going on your merry way, just living your life, on your happy way to hell, just living, 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 and then all of a sudden, something changes in your mind and something changes in your heart. You hear the gospel and you hear it in a way that you never heard it before. It, it's like your eyes are open. And you begin to understand such that you want to embrace the truth of the gospel. And you see, that's the work of spirit sanctification setting you apart. You are born again under the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God so that you may believe the truth. The Spirit of God sanctifies by means of the truth so that you can believe the truth. And he says, you ought not fear the wrath of God because you're loved by Jesus, chosen, saved by God, and then the Holy Spirit came in and set you apart so that you can believe the truth. What I mean to tell you is that that day when you heard the gospel like you never heard it before, kids, was there ever a time in your life where you, you kept hearing the gospel, you, you came to church, you heard it from your mom and dad, but then all of a sudden you said, ah, I want to believe that, Dad. I, Mom, I, I want to believe that truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for my sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. I believe that. I trust that for me. You know why you began to do that? Because the Holy Spirit of God was at work in your life. We call that drawing you. 
And that leads us to the next characteristic, which is number five, called through the gospel. Look what he says here. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. To this, to what? To believing in the truth, you see? He called you to believe in the truth. Now, we hear that word call and we think of picking up a phone. But that's not what the word means. The word called, now listen to this, pay very careful attention. The word called is a reference to the powerful and effectual call of believers to believe the truth and thus be saved. And when I say that word effectual, what I mean is that God actually accomplishes what he sets out to do. That word called, when it's used in the epistles, always refers to the powerful, effectual call of God. I say it's powerful because you'll remember this. The gospel is the what of God unto salvation for everyone who believes? It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Furthermore, listen to this, Everyone who is genuinely called will be certainly saved. Listen to this. Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 29. Listen to this wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. It doesn't say, and some of those whom he called, he justified. It doesn't say most of those whom he called, he also justified. All who are called, all who hear the call of God in the gospel will be saved. Now remember, many are called, but what? Few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, let me explain this to you this way. Some of you are still lost on point number, what is that? Two, chosen by God. You're still wondering. You're wrestling with the question. And what's the question? Yeah? How do I know if I'm chosen? Or maybe this way. Am I chosen by God? That question can be certainly answered by asking another question. And that is, will you believe the gospel? And if you hear the good news that Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died in your place when he died on the cross, and if you want to embrace the, the Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, the reason that you have any desire to embrace that is because God has done a work in you before you even recognized it. You want to know, you want to settle this for sure if you've been chosen by God? Then believe the gospel. Kids, let me talk to you again. Do you believe the gospel? You might not understand every aspect of the gospel, but do you believe the gospel that Jesus Christ loved you enough to bear the punishment for your sins when he died on the cross. And you find yourself saying, I, yeah, Pastor Joe, I do believe that. The reason you do is because God's at work invisibly drawing you, opening your heart so that you might under, embrace the gospel. And listen, as you grow up, and as you mature, you're going to begin to understand these things like you never even understood them before. But right now in your own heart, what you're saying is, I believe the gospel. What I understand is what I believe. And the reason that you do that is because of the call of God. God's call going out through Spirit to waken you from your dead spiritual deadness. Open your eyes to the truth. So... If you're wrestling with the question, am I chosen? You, what you really should be asking is, do I believe the gospel? Because according to this, only those who believe the God, the, the ones who believe the gospel are those who are chosen by God. And number six characteristic is this. 
Verse 14. To this He called you through our Gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are appointed to glory. That you may obtain is literally that you may possess the glory of Jesus Christ. Loved by Christ, chosen by God, saved from wrath, sanctified by the Spirit, in Spirit-led belief in the truth, called by through the Gospel and appointed to glory. Let me ask you a question, dear saint. What purpose of God can be thwarted? This would be a good question to teach your children. What purpose of God can be thwarted? If you're biblical, you would answer the same answer as Job did in Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. As a believer in the truth, you must realize that this is not some haphazard decision of man that is made on a whim. No way. A man or woman, a boy or girl embracing the truth of the gospel is a realization of the eternal delight of God to take that one unto himself and move him or her from the realm of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of His love such that that very one was appointed to be a possessor of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. You see what he's saying here? Don't fear the wrath of God. You're not appointed to wrath, believer. You're appointed to the glory of Jesus, the very glory of Jesus. And that's why I said earlier that when we get to heaven, there's not going to be one of us there thinking, I don't really belong, but I'm just, you know, you go to a party or you go to, a, you just, people just kind of like get in there. I know I don't really belong, but I'm here. That's not going to be the case in heaven. Every one of us will know for certain that we belong and it's nothing to do with us. I'm appointed to the very glory of Jesus. So don't fear. Why are you fearing? Why do you get all discombobulated? My right, kids, if you can spell that word, I'll give you a pastor's prize box thing, right? Without looking up. Why do you get all discombobulated? I see them all working now. Why do you get all fearful when things go on in our world and and, and political powers shift and ebb and flow as they always have and always will, why do you get all fearful when you are a believer in the gospel? So what? What's the big so what? Well, the big so what comes in verse 15. And he says, so then, brothers, two things. Stand firm... And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters. Stand firm. Interesting. When Paul speaks regarding eschatological things, he loves to use this command, this imperative. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, right? Stand firm. Be immovable, right? What does this mean? This is the word that when I, when, I, when I look at this word, just to see it in the Greek, immediately I think about somebody who stakes a claim, puts down a flag and says, this is my mountain, you know? This is my claim. What he says is, here's the big so what to you Christian. Don't move one inch off of the truth that you believed. You were taught from the very beginning, Right? that those who believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would never face the wrath of God, do not move from that one inch. You were taught that when you believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would never face the wrath of God. You were taught that when you believe the gospel, you would never be condemned because the Lord Jesus Christ was condemned for you. Don't move off of that foundation. Don't move one inch. Stake your claim on the Word of God. 
For the Thessalonians, that was the spoken word, which became the written word. For us, it's the written word. Jude says, calls this the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Stake your claim on this. No matter come what may, and there are lots of things that I don't understand, not only about the present, but especially about the future. But this one thing I re, I am, I'm not moving from, I will never face the wrath of God because Jesus faced it in my place. Stand firm. And then he uses a word, hold on or hold fast. This is a word that refers to a solid grip. Firm, locked in. I said earlier, like a bulldog, when he latches onto something, he is not letting go. It refers to taking a firm hold on the apostolic word as it has been passed down in the Bible. Hold fast to the word. Don't move one inch off of this truth that you as a believer in Jesus Christ will never face the wrath of God and hold fast. You've got to get a grip on the word and refuse to let go. You must be sure to strengthen the influence of the word in your life. You've got to become a master of the word. And you will not become a master of the word until the word is a master of you. You've got to work hard, brothers and sisters, and use all diligence to have the word in your heart and in your mind. Now, almost 30 years now, I've been in pastoral church ministry, and longer than that, I've been a Christian. And as I sat down and I, I asked myself, what does it practically look like for me to hold onto the word like a bulldog, bulldog holds onto a piece of meat? Right? What does it look like? I thought of three things. And I just want to give them to you and then I'll probably close. Number one, it looks like seeking a genuine humility. I've seen in my own life, certainly in my own life, and I have seen in the lives of, of professing Christians through these nearly three decades now of ministry, a lack of genuine humility. What am I talking about? I'm talking about putting yourself in a place of hearing and heeding the word. The humility. Practice, seek genuine humility that puts you in a place where you, you hear the word preached, where you read the word daily. Practice a little humility. Seek a little humility that says there are things you don't know. Memorize it. And when you're confronted with truth, don't be so arrogant as to say, I have, I've not heard a lot of, and, and sorry about that, Seth, but I've not, I've not heard a lot of that, but I've seen it in the years. Seek a little humility. It's the first thing I'd say. If you want to you have a bulldog grip on the word, seek a little humility. Second, Quickly put in practice what you have learned or put it into what I call spirit-dependent practice. When you're confronted with a truth, there is no tomorrow. It's right now. And three, this, this leads me to, to, to say this. If I, if I want to have a, a bulldog-like grip on the Word, I need to constantly ask myself the question, what one area do I find resistance? Where do I see unwillingness to submit in my life? Where do I find unwillingness to submit? And then forsake that, whatever it is.
there are four areas that I have seen in my own life and in the lives of others that typically, this is where this area of resistance comes up. One, unforgiveness. If you are not forgiving, your grip on the word is going to be more like a poodle than a bulldog. Right? You're going to be more like a little yippy chihuahua. I'm going to keep this going, right? And then my mind's going all kinds of different ways, but I'll just stop it there. Unforgiveness. And that leads to the second area that, that hinders your grip on the word, and that is bitterness toward others. Person you see, you think about, just makes your skin crawl and your blood boil. You will not have a firm grip on the word. When you're unforgiving, bitter, number three, apathetic. General apathy. When you're just unmoved by the truth, <laughs> I have seen it over the years, especially in the church. Praise the Lord, this doesn't happen, you know, today. But I've over the years, I mean, from somebody having a magazine unfolded in the in the Bible to act like they're reading the Bible, but a magazine to hearing somebody clipping their nails during the preaching, to just general apathy. I don't care. I don't, I don't care. I'm just not moved. See, that's that, you, you sense that hard-heartedness, arrogance, or, or stoic, or maybe just lazy. You just, ah. Unforgiveness, bitterness, general apathy, and number four, secret sin. There's a sin that you're holding on to. And you're just not going to let it go. I, I love that too much. That severely compromises your grip on the word and you're going to find yourself in great fear when you read about things like wrath and judgment and flaming fire and vengeance and to tell you the truth it might be good that you find yourself in fear because you very well may be a recipient of it so that's the so what that's stand firm and hold fast you see let me just try to bring it all together here. Some people think of things regarding the end of time, the last days. We, we know Jesus is coming, amen? He's coming. We're looking forward to it. But some of us say Jesus is coming, and what we mean is just hold on, hunker down, wait, and you'll see him. You'll be together soon. Some of us as Christians think that life is supposed to be tolerated. Just tolerate just a little bit longer. Just hold your nose as you live in the midst of the stench of the world. But that doesn't seem to be the way that the Scriptures calls us to live. You see, there's much more of a realization that Christ is coming to gather His children to Himself which leads to a joyful, patient endurance of temporary trials and suffering. It is a heavenward hope that yields an everyday, moment-by-moment -moment fruit. You and brothers and sisters, you and I are not called to just curl up with our Bibles somewhere in front of a fire and sip coffee, just wait for Jesus. We're called to go and live for Him in holiness and righteousness. We, you and I are called to take an active, to, to an active, hopeful life of ministry, which is what? A life of ministry is a life enjoyed and a life engaged, aimed at the glory of God so that whatever you do, whether you're teaching or writing software or fixing a car or working in an office or being a mommy, whatever it is, you are doing that. Not just curling up waiting for Jesus to come. You're out there active, man, pursuing Christ in every aspect of life. 
And that's what he's going to call us to here in 2 Thessalonians. Because there were people who said, I'm just going to go and live in a cave somewhere right for Jesus to come. Eating bird food somewhere. No! Right? Be actively engaged in a life ministry. Whatever you are called to do, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. You, you don't need to fear wrath if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you come here today, just to be told that, maybe you come here today and you didn't know you were fearing wrath until now. And you were brought here so that you might hear the truth of the gospel and be called to believe it. And it's not, the call isn't coming from me. If there is in your heart a desire to embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's coming from God. And so, seek humility. Right? Seek humility. Quickly put in practice what you've learned. Forsake known sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We're going to sing a song in just a moment. It's a song that's in the inside of your bulletin. It's just the song's name is just Grace. Grace. And I want you to think of those words. It's new to some of you. Maybe you've heard it before. But I want you to think of those words as you reflect on what you've heard this morning. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father... We thank you now for your word. We thank you for how you so clearly speak. And we, there's really no argument we can give. There's, suppose there's some arrogance we could, we would all do well to flee from today. But there's no argument we can make against what you've said. Just believe it. And live like what you say is true because it is. For those who are here who've never embraced the gospel, I pray that they would, in their heart right now, express faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to you. To call out to you right now in their heart. Lord, may you embolden us like a lion as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to live in these days for such a time as this. Until the day you call us home. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say. Amen. Amen.